Coming up on Verse Course Verse, it's time to tackle an undisputed contender for the most hipster album of all time. That is next. Welcome to episode 122 of Verse Course Verse. I am DL. With me is Rachel, the communist daughter polio. Uh. Rachel, I know your dad fought for this country. <laughs> he He's did. a proud man. Yeah. But I had to say it. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Long time no see, huh? I know. It's been over 24 hours, which is yeah. just too long. Quite frankly, we're, Meta- we're Metallica out. I am Metallica out. We are not alone. We have more people with us and I'm going to jump into it because I might want to ask them about this new Metallica. Mm-hmm. We have two gentlemen with us. One goes by the name Rob. Rob, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, DL. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Excited to talk about some neutral milk. Absolutely. We also have Phil who is part of the same podcast we'll talk about in a minute. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. In exciting Delaware, according to Rachel. Yes. Yeah, exciting. Rob and Phil are two members out of how how many do you have? Five? Six? Five as the main set of hosts on the podcast, The Thousand and One Album Complaints. And yeah, it's a weekly show, not unlike Verse Chorus Verse. The premise is that musicians break down classic records from the Thousand and One Albums you must hear before you die list and we vote Mm. on whether or not you really need to listen to them before you die. Phil, you're part of the same podcast. Correct. Correct. And I was excited to, when we got this invite because in the airplane over the sea is a notable snub. So I'm, I'm true. I'm excited. It's not on that list. Didn't no. make the cut. We have we have plenty to say about the list of the <laughs> list maker. We're knocking things off the list left and right, but we haven't spent too much time putting stuff back on. But this would certainly be on. The That's short a list. really good idea for your list. Is what would you replace it with? Kind of stuff. Sure. Isn't the thousand and one the guy that wrote it very British? Well, he's British. I don't know how you can be very British, but yeah, very British. <laughs> I just remember reading over the list and being like, "This guy is British." Morrissey appears many, many times. Yes, that's exactly. what you're asking. Yeah. The, the record, the record that really stands out to me is I thought like really he genuinely believes that the Bee Gees Trafalgar is better than in the airplane over the sea. It made the cut. Yeah, because <laughs> technically you could just say that anything that wasn't on the list is worse than... Yeah, that's a good point. The reality of the book, the guy is a music critic and has a pedigree. And I think it's one of these things where he had an idea, but he probably kind of lost interest like 300 records in oh, and he yeah. farmed it out <laughs> to a bunch of other people and you know things get lost. Rob sure. and Phil... We're very happy to have you. Rob and Phil, uh, like we said, are two parts of a great podcast called 1001 Album Complaints. I've listened to a few of them. I like and dislike the takes, which means it's a good podcast. I've listened to a couple and said, wait, what the fuck? And then I've listened to a couple and said, yes, right on. I think that's the key to a good podcast. If you're yelling at your speaker, then we've done our job. Yeah, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to nitpick. It's fun to take the piss a little bit. You know, it's it's a bit have jokes and we're trying to recreate the the conversations we'd be having at the bar anyway. Just nitpicking even the stuff we love. And I didn't want to gloss over DL that you appeared on the show. In fact, I believe we've timed these episodes to come out at the exact same time, but you're on a thousand and one album complaints talking about REM. Yeah. Stand in the place where you motherfucking live. Uh, we talked <laughs> some green. Okay. That was Big. the worst example from that record, but all right. 
uh, I am a huge REM fan. These gentlemen were kind enough to let me come on their pod. We had a blast. I had a great time. You're right. I think you guys do a very good job of lifting up the art where it should be and knocking it down where it deserves to be knocked. Sure. Well, I noticed that about Verse Chorus Verse as well. It's what me drew me over to, to reaching out to you in the first place is that there's a similar reverence for the craft, right? I hope it comes across in everything we do that we have the utmost respect for people who put themselves out there by writing songs, being creative, producing records. It's really hard to make great material, let alone flawless material. And so it's all just about having a little fun with love. I dream of the day where like, I listen to something I created 10 years earlier and think, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that means that you lost your edge if you do that. <laughs> Maybe. So uh, Phil and Rob, you can catch them on 1001 album complaints, do their main stuff through Instagram. So you can go to at 1001 album complaints. It is part of the chop unlimited. Now explain to me exactly what the chop unlimited is. Sure. It's a creative collective musical guild record label podcast production house. Phil and I many moons ago, were in a band together called the chop. We toured a bunch Played a bunch of shows around San Francisco and up and down the West Coast and toured a bit beyond that. Had a great time. And so we ended up kind of taking over that name. But it's it's just a loose affiliation of the musicians we know who now are spread out throughout the country and even the world. Making records. Phil's in a gigging band in Delaware. I'm in a band or a couple bands out here in California. And we wanted to just combine forces to be creative, to be weird. So, for instance, we like concept albums a lot. So we recently put out a, an Arby's heavy metal concept album. Sorry, a heavy metal concept album where the concept is Arby's, nice. the fast food restaurant. <laughs> it's called Ghost Beef. And so that's the latest <laughs> release. But, you know, we, we like to have fun with it. We don't take uh, the prompts themselves too seriously, but we take the process of songcraft and recording real seriously. So it's a very highly produced Give me an example of what an Arby's metal song is about. I can actually chime in because I didn't I didn't participate in the record. I got the joy of sort of hearing it it downstream. So it's not just what it's about. It's what does it sound like? Imagine if like Wolf Mother wrote a record about I wouldn't call him the protagonist. You know, that guy Curly in City Slickers. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? He's like a cattle driver. Yeah. yeah. Imagine if he was like Lex Luthor of like a beef world <laughs> and the band sounded like Wolf Mother. Wow. Yeah, that's... But also sometimes heart. Heart. Oh. Wow. That's high okay. praise. Love, that is. Love, love me some heart. I hope so. Go check out Ghost Beef. Arby's and metal, duh. Uh, but yeah, at the Chop Unlimited, <laughs> go see what that's about. And of course, at 1001 Album Complaints, like Rob said, I joined them. We're both coming out on the same day. That's going to be a ton of fun. But for now, we have a singular album. I uh, asked Rob, as I do with most people that we guest on, give us either a favorite album or an album that they would love to talk about. So I'm going to bounce this over to you. You came with a couple things. If I'm, I may be misremembering, but I think you came with a couple of things and I thought this would be the most interesting. Yeah. I also don't think that this one would be touched on by anybody else on our pod. I'm kind of the resident hipster. Is this a favorite of yours or a interest of yours? I think I can confidently say it's a favorite of mine. One of the reasons when you asked me what 
it would be fun to talk about. I was looking for a couple things. One, I was looking for something that had been overlooked by the 1001 list, as I mentioned, of which there are many options. And two, something I had a bit of a personal connection to. But I think most importantly, you know, this is one of the things we love to talk about on our podcast, too. Just had a lot of detail within the production. So there'd be a lot of little details to get into of what's going on and, and sort of an excuse to listen to something on headphones in a very intense manner to go into that layered production. To me, that's the most interesting stuff just throughout history. Mm-hmm. Phil, are you a, because you didn't really have a hand in picking this, are you a neutral sure. milk guy? So this is definitely a record that and a band that I would place in a category with like, yes, and dare I say Dave Matthews band, where like <laughs> the in- the intensity of the acquired taste-ness oh, sure, uh, yeah. was huge. Yes. Right? Like it took multiple listenings. I-, I think there was five, six years between the first time somebody said, you got to check this out, to the time where like <laughs> yeah. it clicked for me. Yeah, yeah. Once it clicked, it became very heavy. And I also sort of fell in love with this record around a time when I became interested in bands like Dr. Dog, but mm-hmm. also like okay. Daniel Johnston, right? So like the lo-fi brilliance of this like hit me at the right time. So I think those are elements of this that like Well, you named two yeah. bands that I don't know if I call them guilty pleasure because I love Yes and I love Dave Matthews. Do you think, are sure. those, would you call those guilty pleasures? I will call Dave Matthews a guilty pleasure. <laughs> for sure. I think for sure Dave Matthews, because he's so easily make funnable. Totally. But like, let's not throw the whole thing under the bus forever, right? I, no. There's two sides of yes, at least. And one side, even if you put on, say, their best record, Fragile, and you have people over, there's some tracks that are a little cringe, where you're like, you just kind of have to get through this one. <laughs> there will be a Rachel in the crowd going, how fucking long is this song? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we just say that, because Phil said this so many years ago when we, I think, you know, we saw Dave Matthews on several occasions in the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s. But even back then, Phil said this, and I feel like it has only gotten more true as every year goes by. He turned to me at one of those concerts and he goes, Dave Matthews is the Jimmy Buffett of our generation. <laughs> he totally is. Yeah, he yeah, totally I is. Agree. Meaning, mm-hmm. our, this group of people is going to be getting drunk to this music until they're 75 and beyond. Extremely accurate. Rachel, you're a huge Dave fan, but even further, uh, no, you're not. Neutral Milk Hotel, were you familiar with them before studying for this? Not at all. Uh, although it did give me a lot of nostalgia for the late 90s, early 2000s little frank turner like it it felt like a lot of stuff that i'd heard before so i wasn't opposed to it at all listening to it it didn't it didn't take more than one listen to get me going on it in an airplane over the sea i always fuck that up did i say it right in the airplane over the sea by neutral milk hotel it's a wonderful choice that once again i'm not sure how long it would have taken our podcast to touch on so rob and phil i'm glad you brought it to the table we are going to get along with everything, but first, we got to talk about the most important part of the night, and I apologize, because I don't know who on here drinks and who doesn't, so I'm going to start with Rachel. Are you drinking tonight on this Monday? Reminder. It's a school night. Yeah. So I'm drinking a White Claw. Just a White Claw. <laughs> but you are drinking. Yeah. All right. Natural lime. Uh, what f- oh, how <laughs> natural my ass. How's it taste? Is it delicious? Uh-uh. No, that's bad. No, that's a bad... White Claw sponsorship, here we go. I know. Thanks, White Claw. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rob, are you a drinker at all? You know, not too much, DL, and I'm, I'm not currently drinking alcohol. I might take an edible or something later tonight. That's a little more my speed. That definitely counts. I, You know, the more and more I have people on, the more I need to change it from what are we drinking tonight to what are we partaking in. I don't even know <laughs> what the hell you'd say. Phil, how about you? It's funny you say that because I, I've actually been cutting way back on my drinking. And Good it's, for you. It's led, and thank you, but maybe not. Who cares, right? Like, you know, it's all... <laughs> it's all it's all life in the end. Uh, so it's led me down this this road where I'm having like, if I have a drink, I have one drink, which is like now like an old man drink. I'm having like, I've been making a really old fashions of late. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So this is an old fashioned, but I've been modified it by, I've, I've added these, these cherries that are like soaked in booze, but then I also like to put five milligrams of THC in there. Okay. <laughs> drink that down. <laughs> So all of the above. That's that's all. That's kind of like the Phil special. (laughs) But it's not really a Monday. It's not really a Monday night thing, you know. It's usually more of like a Friday, maybe Thursday night. You said it yourself. You got to live. I am boring as shit tonight because I had no time to do anything. But my mountains are blue, (laughs) and uh, I've just got a Coors Light. I'm a little dehydrated anyway after the uh, long trip this weekend. Oh, yeah, that is what I was going to. So we recorded a live reaction for our pod with all of our pod people on the new Metallica. I know this is a complex question that I'm asking for a simple answer to. But Phil, what are your thoughts on Metallica? And were you at all excited for the new album? Full disclosure, I I did not know there was a new Metallica record until tonight. But but. I like Metallica, especially old Metallica. Yeah. Um, like I've played guitar. I've played guitar since I was like 11 or 12. Right. So like, what am I going to say bad about the whole master of puppets ride the lightning? Like, yeah. Injustice for all era. Like, what am I going to say? That's like, isn't other than like the shit rocks hard, <laughs> you know? So, uh, Rob, what about you? I'm kind of in a similar boat to Phil. I was sort of aware just through my internet snooping that they were coming out with a record and I did listen to it a little bit today as it turns out and it, you know it's pretty good I was a big fan when I was preteen to teenager in the black album and before era and then I kind of fell off with them but yeah they're good and the new record sounded you know it's pretty good can I say too I admire Metallica because I mean they obviously have staying power right they've been a band I know they've traded yeah. gone yeah. through bass players and everything they've been playing stadiums for what 30 plus 30 years now Mm-hmm. I don't want to say only on the strength of the material they recorded pre-1992, but that's the last time they had any proper hits, right? I think all of their albums do really well. It's the Black Album and Prior are the ones that people cite. Right. Sure. So you hit a certain level of, I've just turned out enough in the catalog that this is going to sustain world stadium tours indefinitely. I guess Red Hot Chili Peppers are sort of in the same category. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Is he still, still closing <laughs> totally. with All Along the Watchtower? <laughs> Crash into me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're drinking. That's what we're talking about. Really excited to have 1001 Album Complaints here. Really appreciate you guys. Had a blast with you on your pod. Once again, everybody go check that out. Go listen to it. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Let's talk in the airplane over the sea. 
by Neutral Milk Hotel, released in 1998, uh, recorded in Pet Sound Studio, whopping 39 minutes long, and the label was merged, the independent label. Producer Robert Schneider. So this is the first thing that I did not know until I started studying for this. I didn't realize that Robert Schneider and Jeff Mangum were so fucking tight. Yeah. I didn't even know they knew each other, but they're besties, basically. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, you know, the aforementioned Shop Unlimited collective is somewhat modeled off this Elephant Six collective idea where it's this people living in different cities who just have similar ideas about how music should and shouldn't be and kind of help each other out, both with promotion and creating records. So the fact that Schneider's over in Denver, right, and Apples and Stereo are making records over there, I think, that's where the studio is. Yeah. And Magnum, I think it started in Louisiana, but then they moved to Athens and that's where they properly started gigging and stuff. Yep. I read a 33 and a third about this record like years ago. Oh. Uh, it, it, and uh, it's pretty cool, but it, I don't remember all the connections, but it definitely talks about not just like Nutramilk Hotel, but Cat Power. What's the other one? The one that uh, the one that Schneider's in. Apples, Apples and, and Stereo. stereo. And, and it, you yeah. know, it dropped a bunch of other like, you know, real indie sounding names. But yeah, so there, there's this interesting connection. I forget the exact connections, but some of the people on the scene participated in this like youth arts immersion program in Louisiana. And Rob sort of referenced Louisiana. I don't remember the exact connection, but I think that's where Mangum's from. They went, yeah, they went to like kindergarten and shit together. And they were in one of these programs where like they didn't teach you numbers or letters until you asked about them, right? Sort of shit. Oh, I got it, a yeah, rainbow in reading. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. like, yeah, it was an, int- <laughs> it was an intensive arts immersion, like uh, early learning program. And then a bunch of those people reconnected and met other people in Athens. I want to say when they were in college but not all of them were in college they just sort of moved to Athens in their late teens I wonder if REM was ended up being a big influence then if they were doing the Athens thing that's interesting for for sure I mean they definitely talked about the sort of proximity to bands like Soul Asylum I want to say were like Athens via Minnesota or something like that I forgot the exact I think in these scenes there's like generations right so in the REM story they talked about how the (laughs) B-52s helped make live bands and weird little scene you know the artistic scene come alive musically and then REM was kind of that just a few years after, I think. Then after that, after REM broke big, and now there's this infrastructure in the town of venues, of bookers, of people who are primed to want to see quirky little indie bands, then a lot of bands kind of go there. And I think the other band, I think, is part of Elephant Six, but maybe that next generation beyond Neutral Milk is of Montreal. They've done really well. Also, They've done so, really well. Yeah. So I was a big apples and stereo guy i think i think i knew them before i knew neutral milk somehow i loved them yeah i'd never put it together until i started studying for this and got really into the whole elephant six thing one thing that probably explain explains to me why i like it so much robert schneider pet sound studio this is so i made a joke at the very beginning of this calling it a high contender for the most hipster album of all time Coming out of this generation, it seemed like there was a part of the industry that was really trying to figure themselves out. The guys that had that Jeff Tweedy, I, anytime I think of Jeff Mangum, I always go to the Jeff Tweedy types or what's the guy that kind of predated all them that 
killed himself. Uh, Elliot Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. And I feel like this did, it felt like one of those albums that busted the scene open, even though it didn't, it's not like it did great or anything. Sure. But it felt like it busted something. No. I think one of the weirdest things about this record is that, it, yeah, it didn't ever make a splash. It's not like these guys are ever on MTV. It's the definition of a cult record. It seems like it gets yeah. passed from person to person in a very one-on-one manner. I mean, Elliot Smith was on the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, and that kind of broke him big. And like a lot of artists that have this level of... of fame let's say or hipster cred had some moment like that neutral milk hotel just feels like it's been this very grassroots affair slow burn one of the things that i found while researching for this that this was kind of one of the first albums that didn't do amazing when it first came out but picked up speed because of the internet picking up speed at that time. And so that's how people started finding oh, out yeah. about this band and about their music. They're on, no, they're a part of a Parks and Rec episode. Oh. Where they, you find out that, uh, you, who's the kind of the, not goth girl, but the very dark. April. April. You find out that this is April Ludgate's favorite band. She's from Delaware, by the way. Oh. She's the most famous oh, Delawarean, I, I think, Delaware. these days. <laughs> <laughs> That probably got up a few listens, too. Sure. Um, it was like that, or it was the the band that your favorite band listens to kind of thing. Yes. He, sure. This whole yes. next generation of bands, of you know, Decemberists and The Shins and, you know, the, I, Arcade Fire would drop in references to Newsroom Milk Hotel, I feel like, in interviews. When I talk about busting the door open, I hate using it, but I'm going to keep using it. When you start thinking hipster bands, you think of Arcade Fire being the big one, Bonnie Vare's that album he did when he was out in the wilderness and so i'm gonna say something maybe like borderline insane okay but like when did nirvana unplug come out like 94 95 uh, it had 93? Kirk, 90, 94 93 and then kirk Cobain kills himself like april 94 give or take it's it's something like that yeah in the weirdest of ways this feels like the Nirvana record that would have come out next. It's like lo-fi. It's weird. It's hybrid acoustic. I, I'm not. I mean, this is this is way off beat from obviously. Like it's not the because next... you know what's really weird is there is a. I would have to look it up, but there is a song on here where when the guitar kicks in, I'm like, that sounds exactly like something in the way by Nirvana. It's that same kind of yeah. low quality recorded off of shitty mic acoustic guitar sort of yeah. sound. I, yeah, I, that, I never made that connection either. But I, now that you say that, it's definitely in that same lineage. There's no, I don't think this could have existed without Nirvana. Would be another way to say it. Agreed. I also love that. To me, this is one of the very first. Not very. I shouldn't say that. I, this is one of the best examples of when it came out. The reviews were extremely blah. But if you go to now. <laughs> Pitchfork <laughs> and all music <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Rolling Stone. Mean, oh my goodness. You mean Pitchfork revises the, their reviews to make themselves it, look cooler? What? Isn't that weird? It's wild. <laughs> yeah. So if I said, yeah, the first Pitchfork review was like a five. And now, of course, it's a 10 out of 10 magically. Mm. Whenever you have an album that does that, you know you have a good album. I have to say my initial reviews were blah too. Phil alluded to it, but I had the same experience where this album came with a lot of hype. It came out in, what, 98? It didn't get to me until at least 2005, maybe 2006. That's probably about when I heard it. Where I heard people talking about it, and I had an ex who really loved it. And I listened to it, and I was like, this is 
no, it's a no for me. It took time. It was definitely an acquired taste. I, I totally get it if you listen to this once and you go, this is terrible. I liked it after like it took on you, Rob. Like I had been exposed to it through uh, our friend Marty. Definitely did not take. I was like, this is a no. <laughs> and then and then later, like when living out west, I feel like it surfaced. And I was like, oh man, this is crushing me. So I'm going to set you up for multiple things here, Rachel, because I have, this is like a three-part question. Yeah. The reason I wanted to have you on, besides you're just a delight. Stop. Is is that, first of all, you and I, uh, Rachel and I are the give a shit about the lyrics people on the pod. Mm -hmm. That was a really big deal for me to have you on. Also, I was completely 50-50 on if you would fucking hate this or love it. Yeah. So... With those two things, also the fact that I liked what Rob said about how I don't think this was built up for you. I think I just said, this is the album we're doing. Here you go. So you didn't really have a build up. What are your thoughts? Nothing at all. Came in super blind. The first time I listened to the wrong album uh, was a month back or whenever you asked me the first time if I had heard Milk Hotel. And I was like, of course I've heard them. I listened to them right after you sent that text. Oh, you listened to the Avery? The first album. It was Avery Mountain? On Avery 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 Island. On Avery Island. Oh, yeah, yeah. Island Mountain. Yeah, I listened to that one multiple times and then realized (laughs) that this this In the Airplane Over the Sea was the right one. Early 2000s, I was very into the indie rock stuff that was coming out at the time. And so this was a very easy listen. I listened just kind of passively at work. And then when I finally brought up the lyrics and was looking at the lyrics as I was listening to it, I was like, wow, this is this is really well done. This is uh, really well written. And I was uh, very impressed. The lyrics that Jeff, do you guys call them Mangum or Mangum? I was hoping that could be clarified. For me as well. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I'm going to be yeah, honest. I and the, I already I did this answer. this year is first off for the last 10 years, I've been calling Bonnie Vare Bon Iver. I thought that was his name. Well, that's just your um, lack of culture. I mean, you did already show us you're drinking at Coors Light after all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking Coors Light America, baby. I always thought it was Jeff Mangum, but then when I studied for this, there were a couple people online that I heard talking about him that were saying Mangum. So, sorry, Jeff. We don't know what your name is. It's a pretty subtle distinction in the grand Jeff scheme did. of things. Yeah. yeah, we can just call him Jeff. Man, his lyrics are visceral as hell. Mm-hmm. He does such a good job at... And later on, I'll, I'll point to specifics, but he does such a good job of building music around when his lyrics are going to stab. So I do think he's a good lyricist, but I think the most important thing that I'm in love with about this record is that it is a showcase for his specific vocal style and melodic style. And to me, it's him selling the lyrics really, really effectively because the lyrics are oftentimes abstract. I do agree they're great and there are many great yeah. examples. But to me, it's just that he's able to sell them so well with how his voice swings around and is so personal and fragile. In it's a, it's so intimate. This like delivery, of yes. how he sounds. He sounds very human. And again, it would be an easy voice to hate in the way that people say, you know, they can't listen to Bob Dylan because they don't like his voice. That's the wrong opinion. It's, it's obviously, super but close it's, to like <laughs> late nineties punk almost there's definitely a a hardcore diy punk aesthetic thing that is in there even though it's not as thrashy he is he's an inch away from combing his hair to the side and having a lip ring and (laughs) (laughs) rob you sort of referenced the the humanity right on the record and the sort of like the intensity 
of, yeah. of, of like the, the the rawness of some of the experiences. I believe it was O'Cumley, but in the in the book I read, it talked about how they rode into Denver to record it. They got in and they unpacked some stuff, and they was checking out the studio. And it's literally like first take, first sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... Like he's like di'd into the board. They have one microphone on. He just blasts it out. It's like the first thing they hit record on, and that's just it. wow. No, it probably is that one because at the end you can hear the engineer go like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's that note he can't get to, but it still 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 it. works. Yeah. That is something that I noticed about that song specifically. So it's funny that you say that. Is that I wrote down that there was this rawness when he comes to say what you want to say and his voice like kind of cracks and I was like they didn't redo that and I love that they didn't re-record that because I liked the the raw grit of that gave it personality I mean speaking of how the voice is kind of like the instruments I think it's two things one I'm sure we're gonna talk more about the rest of the production but basically every single thing is naturally distorted Meaning yes. like they're just pushing so hard into a microphone or I don't know, he runs it through a tape deck. Right. And gets or they just let the feed blast. Yeah. Something. Exactly. And so I think the vocal approach has some connection to that. And it's and two, because one of his tricks as a singer, you know, other than just he's he's reaching for something that he doesn't always 100% get, but he's doing this big octave swing in a lot of the songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not literally just jumping up an octave, but he kind of works the melody from the low octave and then he comes back again. He's having to force so much air out of his mouth that it's it's like breaking up in the microphone on its own, let alone the note thing we just talked about. Rachel, you are a big, big fan of having the random instruments on an album. Mm, I really am. <laughs> Wow, this is, this was made for you then. It was. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, bagpipes? What's this? Like, just <laughs> anything that's not, uh, you know, guitar, bass, drums. What was the tub? Flugelhorn. Oh, my gosh. One of the guys is credited with a bowed banjo, but there's also a the saw. Bowed banjo. A singing saw. Saw. Zanzithophone. Yeah, I, I looked it up. Also, it's not the bagpipes. It's the Illin pipes. Oh, it wasn't yeah. bagpipes. Which is the national bagpipe variant of Ireland and also sounds like something oh. the Beastie Boys would Well, use. I mean, <laughs> gotta get your own bagpipe variant. Duh. I know live they used a Casio electric saxophone, which nice. is like a... It was that like sounds a, like a teaching tool. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I think like, that's what they're but, calling but still, the Zan, Xanthophone or the Xanthophone. Really? I think so, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing about this album because the King of Carrot Flowers, parts one, two, and three, Into the Airplane or the Sea, Two Headed Boy, The Fool, Holland 1945, just the name, the tracks, and what they're doing on here, the type of music lover that I've become. All intents and purposes, I should hate this fucking album. <laughs> this is the most pretentious shit. And I love it. I fucking yeah, love it. I don't know, know what, what... Do either of you know why that... It, what it is about this album that <laughs> makes it likable to somebody that should hate it? I, well, no, yeah, I have some thoughts. I think we, we touched on its unselfconsciousness. It's very, it's so intimate that it yeah. almost is awkward to listen to. Like I've been in someone else's therapy session. Yeah. And I think yes. that can't help but draw you in once you... I'm not this honest with my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Think about Anne Frank a lot. I, and I just, I just think there's a lot of raw, real human emotion. I'm personally a sucker, speaking of lyrics and song themes, the themes of coming of age or lost youth or lost love, things of that nature, which which I feel like this whole album kind of dwells in wistfulness, if you will, 
is most interesting to me. And and we haven't touched on it yet, but one of the things that I heard early about this record was that it was heavily influenced by him reading The Diary of Anne Frank. Yes. And yeah. I just want to put a plug out there. I mean, I know everyone probably had to read it in school, but I read it. I happened to have read it again, like in the last seven years. And I was re-blown away by how affecting that text is. So I just sort of, I, I, I was kind of overcome with emotion by it in a way that I was not expecting, I guess is, is what I want to say. I'm glad that you're saying that and I'll, you can, I'll let you go back to it. But the last time I read it, I didn't like it because I, and this was, keep in mind, I was probably late twenties and it was the second time I think I'd read it. And I was like, this is just about a, this is about a fucking kid who likes a boy. But at this age, if I read it again, I'm older, a little wiser. Yeah. I actually have a, a soul again a little bit. <laughs> I feel like reading it and just hearing she's just a regular kid trying to be a, wanting to be a fucking yeah. kid. I, I'm sure that that fucking I, tugs at you. Yes, I think it is about age. And it's similar to how when you if you go back and rewatch movies, maybe you watched when you were a teenager, you now relate to the parents more than the yeah. teenagers, <laughs> right. even though I, I don't personally have kids, but you just, you get to that mindset and you see that mindset more. Since we're getting deep, I'll just, I'll just share a, a breakthrough I think I've had recently on this topic. I no longer think fables are for children. I think they're for oh. adults in their like mid twenties to early forties. And they've been designed in a way in which they make sure it reaches the reader at the right time. My grandpa, who's a good man, sent my daughter about two years back a big old book of Aesop's Fables. Mm -hmm. And I know the book. And we, <laughs> and we fucking love it. We both love it. I think you are spot on. I, one of the reasons I'm really glad that you brought this to the plate is this is the type of album that I'll pop on every now and then if I more if I just want something in the background but i'm not sure how many times i would have you know like a friday night with a whiskey sat down and really tried to soak this album in oh interesting see to me it's definitely and not a background record i'll put this on usually by myself in the car so i can sing along to it because again it feels but what do very... you do when you're crying do you just pull over <laughs> <laughs> i just wipe away the tears man yeah <laughs> It, but it's very personal. I wouldn't expect other. I don't. I almost don't want to share it with other people. I would not. I would never put it on a dinner party. Not that you suggested that, because it has a lot of abrasive edges to it, and because I I know it's gonna. Did that dude just say your father made fetuses with flesh-looking ladies? <laughs> One of his many great lyrics. <laughs> Well, I know you're to you're totally right. I, I wrote that it's simultaneously a guy who picks up an acoustic guitar at a party who you hate and also a weird avant-garde high art production at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I think there is a part of this style of music that people they like that it's not popular, that it feels like it's theirs. Yep. And I think what makes Jeff so fucking real is he so obviously not only didn't care about money or fame, but he didn't want fucking fame. That's why there is no neutral milk hotel because it All started right. to get right. even. I, I knew this would come up, so this is this is like the golden moment from the book. So <laughs> I, 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 I waited for this. So uh, probably on April twenty fifth, nineteen ninety eight, Neutral Milk Hotel, Elf Power, and Gerbils, who they had been touring with, were traveling from Minneapolis to Chicago. Blah blah blah. So Jeff and his girlfriend Laura, who's in the band, are in one car. They have the gear, and the rest of the band is in the other car. They all stop at a Pizza Hut for lunch. About two hours after they leave the Pizza Hut, the other vehicle rips a U-turn on the whole highway. Jeff and Laura decide they got to keep going to the show. We'll set up the gear. 
I don't know what's going on there, but we've got a truck on or we'll miss yeah, the this show. This is pre-cell phone. Pre-cell phone, yeah, exactly. yeah. In fact, that's exactly what they say here. This is pre-cell phone, pre-Google Maps. So basically what happens here is that the band had demanded that every show be paid in cash for the entire tour following Airplane Over the Sea. So by the time they're going from Minneapolis to Chicago or whatever, according to one of the people, Scott, it's like three to $4,000 in a duffel bag. But according to the other one, it's ten to twenty thousand dollars. So they leave this under a table at a Pizza Hut. They go back, and it's there. (laughs) Oh wow! Round trip four hours later, they drive the wrong way two hours, then back two hours. They go back, and it's there. Oh my god! Oh my god! And then the next day. Then, then, then the next day, basically, they that was the point at which they said they recognized the the degree to which their sort of like DIY punk, like anti mainstream ethos was like had gone too far. Yeah, right. And they they got some money <laughs> orders and they sent some cash home and uh, you know continued on. It's not like Jeff just quit doing Neutral Milk Hotel. He just fucking quit. Yeah, he became Truth. like a JD Salinger style recluse for a long time. Mm-hmm. They're they've reunited now, but it took fifteen plus years, I think. So. Jeff is with them? I'm not sure of all the ups and downs, but I know I saw Jeff Mangum play solo once. This is probably 2015 or 16. It was on his first return tour, but for a long time, he didn't make music. He didn't grant interviews. He was a famous recluse who wanted nothing to do with the press. He told all the fans to leave him alone, basically. But then, you know, eventually money lured them back. A cash in a duffel bag lured them back, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. I saw Mangum solo in 2013. I actually have a ticket in the book. And uh, it was great. I've never seen a solo acoustic concert that was so loud. It was insane. (laughs) Is that because people were singing along? No, no, no. Because the front of house was so loud. This is clearly something he told them to do. He clearly told them to crush the audience with volume. Where Uh, are we at with the sing-along at a show like this? Because I feel like... They were definitely, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm right, I'm right on the edge moments. of whether or not that's appropriate or not, you know? Yeah, concert etiquette is a big fucking deal right now. I, for one, do tend to drink a bit too much and sing along at concerts. That's my thing. And now I'm starting to learn that I'm not supposed to do that. That's why I'm, that's why I'm saying it's a tough call. I, I see both sides of the argument. I, I certainly have sung along, but it's just, probably, I also just, know I can stay in the key. Or just, I be doing just, for my, just for my own personal reference. If you were at a concert and the song had a famous saxophone solo, would you try to sing the saxophone solo? That's all I sing, actually. I think it depends on the band. Maybe if you had like, a saxophone? Yeah, pull out a little a Casio. If you had your own with... Uh, first of all, which song, what band do you sing with a famous saxophone? You going to see Yakety Sax Well, now we're back to Dave Matthews' band. That's what we're back to. The, the time I had a bad experience, it was Asia by Steely Dan. Oh, shit. (laughs) Airplane over the sea. This was an interesting thing to me because going through the lyrics and going through the what I thought the meanings were of the songs, I feel like this is very much a make it whatever you want. There was a ton of Anne Frank here. What confused me, though, was the very beginning, which is just brilliant. But that's very clearly about the nuclear family going nuclear if you will the natural fade of the nuclear family and how eventually everybody just ends up hating each other i guess i just thought it was weird because i saw two very specific meanings in this album one was about that that small family growing apart as they do and and then a lot of fucking world war ii and anne frank and stuff can anybody here help me with the 
correlation there because i was i i can't figure it out i can't for me it's also all mixed up in some sort of like carnival carny pre-world war ii american south imagery like it's obscured even more in this beautiful like magical way but no Mm -hmm. i feel like i i feel like your thoughts were more coherent than mine (laughs) yeah i I agree i I don't edible phil (laughs) good point I, I don't actually think it's a concept album. I think his lyrics are purposely abstract. And yeah, themes like family, love, and, and certainly death. It's I think it's definitely intended to be pretty impressionistic. I definitely felt like it was a fever dream. And not in a bad way. Like not in a scary, terrifying fever dream, but more of a, there are aspects of it that super make sense, but it's kind of mixed with things that are just maybe meant to confuse you or just do confuse you. And there's no clear picture of what actually he's trying to say or they're trying to communicate. I like the whole purposefully trying to confuse you because he does seem like the type that would want to do that. Sure. There are times where I feel like he's just trying to express the feeling. He doesn't really care about any, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's yeah. about, it's about yes. super yeah. stream of consciousness yes. for sure. Yes. Yeah. In an air in the airplane over the sea, I'm going to get it right someday by Nutramilk Hotel. Still got a lot to go over. So we're going to take a, a break. We'll be right back. It's yeah, not going out on a limb. Yeah, I remember seeing some Onion article or something a while back that said said something like ISIS gives Nutramilk Hotel two star review. <laughs> like that was the worst thing they could do. Yeah. We are back, Nutramilk Hotel. Let's get into some awards and categories. The gentlemen Rob and Phil, their first time on the pod. I will go over the awards, but they are aware. They know what's up. The first one we do is the David Crosby Meh Award. I, just, I like to cruise the internet for bad one-star reviews, uh, particularly Amazon usually has really, really good ones. This one though, not really. All the one-star reviews are because the vinyl was shitty. <laughs> Except for one, this is Chris from 2017 who gave it one star and said, I had heard great reviews. The music is just very bizarre. True. Hey. Yeah. Agreed. That might that guy might be in my band. <laughs> <laughs> you see this cover and you see the band name Neutral Milk Hotel. Do you think that that's not going to be yeah. bizarre? Yeah, it sounds like uh, fridge magnet poetry or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The DMX Award. What makes this band artist project unique? Rachel, what do you got? So much. The vocals on it are different and unique and from a lot of stuff that I've listened to before. The instruments, the non-bagpipe bagpipes, what do we call it, Zach? <laughs> Zaps, Zaps, the Illin, the Illin pipe. Xanthophone, whatever. All these uh, variety of instruments. And also, like I mentioned earlier, this is this band apparently was one of the first uh, internet sensations because there was an internet, and that's kind of how they caught fire. So yeah, the internet definitely organizes a bunch of pockets of disconnected weirdos who slowly <laughs> yes mass connected who buy microphones and yeah. start to talk to each other. <laughs> Phil, what makes this project unique? So I definitely think production elements. I think uh, Jeff Mangum's songwriting style and 
voice and lyrical choices, specifically topics ranging from Siamese twins in embalming fluid to dying in war. So, yeah, it's uh, to, to potentially personal sexual experiences it's a very bizarre combination <laughs> of emotional experiences that he expresses and uh, it definitely makes it unique yeah as previously stated i think it really comes down to his vocal style which he also the swinging wavery almost too personal approach to both singing and writing and I'd like to point out that he's self-referential about his own singing style multiple times on the album. He talks about bending notes a lot, which is what mm-hmm. he's doing. It makes it a great sing-along record. I heard someone call it a psychedelic campfire record. But one thing we haven't even brought up yet, speaking of just bizarre combos, is that stuff, the super personal acoustic guitar stuff, combined with the big Eastern European orchestra marching (laughs) over the Caucasus Mountains on Turkish elephants to invade (laughs) Azerbaijan vibe of the instrumental tracks. So it is is truly bizarre, and you're not going to hear another record like this. You make a really good point, right? Because, like, there are a lot of, uh, I guess what I'd call, like, droning elements that I think are maybe similar to dance music and trance music and things things that we are all very familiar with with rooted in synthesizers not yes. trombones and singing saws but like the effect is there and it's it's powerful you know and very interesting i agree with everything everybody said and this is a leap but i'm going to do it because it's a podcast i know that there were hundreds of albums that were highly influential at the time but currently Behind me are this album and Keep It Like a Secret by Built to Spill. As far as kind of indie bands, it's very hard to find late 90s, like 97 albums that were as influential as these for very different reasons. Because when I listen to this, it reminds me of the big one that you were talking about, Rob, with just the big cacophony going along with the acoustic so many of these Decembrists and Lumineers, and we've said Arcade Fire like three times. And then Built to Spill was a little more on the rock indie, a lot more of the dirty electric guitar sort of stuff. When you're talking about influential indie stuff, it doesn't get much more influential to me than this one. That would lead us to the Mark Lanigan True Rock Star Award, uh, Rob. What makes Jeff Mangum a rock star? I suppose it's two things. Willingness to not care what anyone thinks about the kind of record you're going to produce or the kind of songs you're going to write or how you're going to sound on the tape or when you're going to screw up your vocal take. Even though I'm not a fan of this approach, it's very rock star to be a recluse and say, I don't Mm -hmm. want fame. And I refuse to I refuse to tour and I refuse to get grant you an interview and fans, please leave me alone. I'm going to build on Rob's answer rather than, you know, combating it. I agree with everything Rob said. I think what makes Jeff Mangum a rock star is he's like seven foot tall. He's like Bigfoot. He's is so he? big. He, seven foot is ridiculous, but he's <laughs> six three, six five. He's huge. He's so tall. He has a presence and a room. You know, like he sings. He's so loud. Just yes. So, like he is moving so much. Like I don't know who's the blind guy. I hate to say it that way, but you know the, the Ray Charles. No, the opera singer. The tenor, the three tenors. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's like that. He's like moving that much air. It's it's like okay. uh, <laughs> I see what you're going so with. loud. I used For to use human. this record as a warm up 
before we went on stage, I remember. Like, if I had a chance to be in the car and sing to something, this is a great sing-along, like, warm-up. Because you're right, it's all about projecting and putting a lot of air out from your your stomach. He's singing so hard. I'm going to also steal from Rob a little bit. And not wanting to be a rock star is so rock and roll. We didn't talk about this, but early on, they decided that they were going to record stuff on cassette tapes, and then they're just handing them out to friends. They weren't handing them out to record producers. They were just making music to share the music, and that is as rock and roll as it gets. Yeah, that's not wanting to be a rock star is what's rock star. That's that, and he has a hot wife. That's basically (laughs) what makes you... (laughs) Um, Overrated, underrated, properly rated in its time and currently. This is a very interesting question. Rachel, I'll I'll start with you. What do you think? I mean, currently, it's... I I don't want to use myself as the gauge for this, but I had not heard of this. And so that makes me think it is highly underrated. And we did talk in the break about... You know, this is a very personal album. It, it's a lot deeper than a lot of, of music. Lyrically, it's a unique album. It's a u- unique sound. So it's hard to share with somebody because it's probably not going to be as as widely accepted as a, a normal pop album or whatever. You know, I can't really speak to in its time. I mean, I guess I would say it was underrated. In 1998, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't personally in a place to make those judgments, you know, <laughs> I Although I still like the Stone Temple Pilots, so, you know, let's, we just take that for what it's worth. Uh, I, I love the Stone Temple Pilots. They're worth yeah. a, it's worth a lot. All right. Well, if you ever want to talk Stone Temple Pilots, you know, but you just welcome <laughs> me back. Um, I think currently, though, I would say it's accurately rated in that I think it is both highly rated and highly disliked. And I think it's appropriate that it has a, a reasonably strong reaction from you know most people and i also think by design is a law of pudding right like it'll always Mm. sort of remain a little obscure because it's definitely not for everyone yeah phil said it very well i agree it's accurately rated currently it's still polarizing which is appropriate and only makes me more sure that it is in fact an important piece of art because it's going to provoke some kind of reaction i feel confident my only comment would be that it's considering calling it overhyped would simply be because hype can sometimes ruin otherwise good things because mm-hmm. your expectations are overhyped. But I do feel it lives up to the hype. I don't That's how art works. I talked about it earlier, but I'd kind of, I'd compare it to pet sounds. I think if you asked Jeff, what was more important to him as an artist, album sales or the amount of people that would say this fucking hit me hard, right in the heart, 10 out of 10 times, he's going to want that. And I think that's what he got. So I just think it's properly rated. I don't, it's easy to say fucking what's his name? Like corn sells 7 million copies and this sells 10,000, but that's not at all what this album was about. So it's hard to even uh, apply it really. I agree. Totally different goals. Influences and influencees. We've talked, I mean, I've brought up too many, I think already Rob, any that we haven't talked about yet that you think influenced this album or that were influenced thanks to this album? I feel like we covered a lot of it, but certainly the whole DIY scene of the entire 1980s, you know, all the bands that would have been covered in our band could be your life, like the replacements and pavements and any of these bands putting out records on the, you know, using their own money without big label support and touring without support. And I see a strange thread here to the velvet underground 
and Lou Reed's songwriting style, there's just something very real life about it, like in, a, in an uncomfortable way. Yeah. Never mind the Bullocks Award. Rachel, you listened to their only other album yeah. a couple times. Which one did you like more? I did like this one better, but the la- other one was great as well. This one hit a little harder for me, probably because I dug a little deeper into it. Rob, you were the one that brought this album to us. Are you a fan of their first album as well? Yeah, it's okay. I'm relatively familiar with it, but I haven't listened to it nearly as many times as I've heard this one. And I got to it second, certainly. So I would say this is definitely the best of their catalog. But if you like this, the other one is, you know, kind of similar. Yeah. I would agree with that, too. I've heard the other record. It's it's cool. It's like lo-fi punk. I think it's a little more like one sound. I think the easier to get into is absolutely right. Because there are times where if I listen to more Neutral Milk Hotel, I would probably listen to their first album more than I'd listen to this one. That's one that you can just turn on and kind of bop around I to. I don't know. It's a little little hoppy. Not it's almost poppy. like a Ramones record at times or something. Yeah, yeah. The John Paul Jones Award. So <laughs> if, if you could add a musician onto this album or take one away, stuff like that, add a producer, take a producer away. Well, first of all, I love that you called this the John Paul Jones Award because he is the quintessential person ingredient to add to any band or any production situation. That's I, exactly, I, yep. Super <laughs> underrated. I, I'm sure that's what you're going for. Yes. Good call. I, honestly, I think the record is perfect as is. I, I truly wouldn't really change anything about it because I think it would only take away from its original intention. But I wanted to bring up the other record production-wise this kind of reminds me of, it's a little bit of a leap, is the unicorns who will cut our hair when we're de- when we're gone. Okay. So be- because of the nature of it's very melodic and it has a lot of toy instruments and weirdness on it, weird textures <laughs> on it. I love that record too. And I, I've been following Nick... Thornburn, I think his name is, the main guy there, through his other bands. He's in a band called Islands now. So I was just thinking it would have been cool to see those two guys collaborate. All right. I'm going to go in a radically different direction with this. I like just, it. But, but similar similar time frame. I would love Brendan O'Brien, the producer dude, who's on like Blood, Sex, Sugar, Magic, Super oh. Unknown, and Pearl Jam <laughs> records. He like makes a bunch of those like 90s rock records from the same era. I want him playing Mellotron, just like he does on like, oh. he plays like on some acoustic Chili Pepper songs and he, they're hidden keyboards on like Pearl Jam and uh, Soundgarden songs. I, I, he also made one of the Rage Against the Machine records like in their rehearsal space. I might need help with this, but I want to hear it tried. I don't think it would work, but I want to hear backup vocals and see if it works. Some harmonizing on a, on a few specific parts on this. I don't know if it would work. And I also don't know who the fuck would be able to do it. Maybe him just harmonizing with himself. Okay, so that's the direction that I went. I was thinking some female vocalist with a really odd sound, and I don't know if this will hit any of you, is Grace Vanderwall, who is a, Mm. she's just a kid. She was on America's Got Talent when she was like, when she was 12 and she played a ukulele and she just has this really I, I unique. I kind of remember that commercial. Yeah. She has a really unique sound. When you said female vocalist with a weird sound, my mind immediately went to Joanna Newsom with that Whoa. harp. <laughs> Joanna want, Newsom would be good. I went to Emmy Lou Harris. Oh, Emmy Lou Harris would be, it's too pretty. Yeah, it's too yeah, pretty. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But she she has a... The No, dude, seriously, award. Uh, you have one song to show somebody. This album is worth listening to. Rachel, what song are you picking? I picked O'Cumley. It's a good 
raw example of what this album is. You're not going to be surprised by anything else on it. There is a little bit of like, look, if you can handle this song, you can handle the album. Phil, same question. Probably going Hollow 1945. I feel like it's got the best like pop sensibility. And it also gives you the super full blast horns and full blast Jeff Mangum at the top of his lungs. Yeah, it's a little bit of a toss-up, but I'm going to go with the basic bitch answer in the airplane over the sea, the title track. (laughs) I have played it on guitar for many friends that have probably never heard this record. I think it's a showcase for the songwriting, for the simplicity of the songwriting, but also his voice and the way it bends notes and just the simple themes. Uh, So we all said something different because I said ghost. A lot of what Phil said, I think ghost and like everything that this album is going to throw at you, it's on this song. It's small and acoustic and then he's doing the the aggressive voice and then all of a sudden it's fucking coming at you like a fucking Dr. Seuss band. And the distortion on ghost is super cool. Like I've always thought, I I don't exactly know how they do it, but like when you listen to it in headphones, it sounds really wide or something. It's just super, super cool. What do they call it on the liner notes? I think they call it like fuzzy bass or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, Something like that. (laughs) John Popper award. Rachel, what's the best hook? on this album. I wish you hadn't come to me first. I don't know. And I don't want to say the not bagpipes, but that's the part that (laughs) plays in my head. I said two headed boy. It's not even the, well, I mean, there's a fucking chorus, but it's literally him just doing the two headed boy because that boy hits on that B or it's that classic indie major chord but there's because of the buildup and the Mm -hmm. regression it sounds minor the note that he's choosing to hit i'll i'll have that in my head for like four days phil what about you as odd as the lyrics are i'm going with the uh here's where your mother sleeps here's the room where your brothers were born it hits like a again like a pop song it like feels like you've heard the lyric before when it comes up that's from holland 1945 and so that was going to say generally that song is the sort of poppiest Although the truth is, right, we didn't really touch on this, but song structure wise, I don't think any of these songs have structure to them. There's very little repetition in that. There's melodic repetition, but not in that traditional refrain kind of way. So it's a little hard to pick out a hook. But yeah, I think the Hollow 1945 is the one that's going to get the room moving. I've seen bands cover this one. I don't think I've seen bands cover any of the other tunes. And like, it makes sense. John Prine, best lyric award i already said the thing about the father made fetuses with flesh licking ladies i mean (laughs) while you and your mother were asleep in the trailer park that's the second line this is fucking brilliant but for me it's the entire fucking song of the first carrot flower song the imagery that he's building of the contentious dinner table and the stabbing with the fork and the your your mother's drinking while your dad's thinking of ways to die it's fucking it is an onslaught of depressing brilliance. Rachel, what about you? I said the first thing, the first one was semen stands the mountaintops. Or semen stands the mountaintops. I just thought. Pervert. That's a really good visual. I, I could get that. That's funny. <laughs> um, but the English lover in me, in O'Cumley, there's a line that says, so make all your fat fleshy fingers to moving i thought that was really beautiful yeah so this is an interesting question i've always loved the i love you jesus christ i love you (laughs) yeah i love not only because i just think it's just so intense 
but also I like how like you if you move commas around like you can get if you can elicit different feelings I can imagine myself singing the song and like feeling that line differently first of all love John Prine as a songwriter also so again you're kudos a good man thank for you. your award <laughs> uh, yeah I, I have two as well and I wanted to, Rachel mentioned I pulled a lyric that was right next to her lyric and yeah. also includes alliteration which is soft, silly music is meaningful, magical. That line always stuck out to me. And the other one is from In the Airplane Over the Sea. It's how strange it is to be anything at all. I think of that that once a week, just randomly in my head. If you aren't familiar with this album, at least just listen to it once and for the lyrics, because the lyrics are just fucking incredible to me. Now, here's an easy one, because this album just shreds. Uh, the Eddie Van Halen Award for Best Riff or Solo Award. You have to get a little inventive with this one, but we don't always do. Sometimes it's just, you know, that instrument that hits you right or something. And so I am saying towards the middle end of Ocumley, he starts following with his voice the, I want to, th- I think it's a flugelhorn, but it's kind of hard to say. It's some form of marching band brass, but it's him and the flugelhorn copying the line i don't know how it's beautiful because of the way he's singing is kind of that tenuous but it is it's fucking beautiful and that's what i said uh rob what about you i'm going illin pipes on the untitled track those are bagpipes yeah the bagpipes it's a bagpipe variant (laughs) dl please get your facts straight (laughs) bagpipes are from scotland illin pipes are from ireland so i'm just gonna go with the track the Fool. I think it's a, a wonderful instrumental break. It's not really a soloist, but it you know it is more of a for the listener, and, and and I've always loved it. That's exactly what I said. I said the the brass on the Fool. It was just it's good, good timing in the middle of the record as well. The time of your life award. What is the worst song on this album? Uh, I'll start it since it's the least fun to answer. I'm saying the Two-Headed Boy Part 2. This is the one song where his aggressive voice, if there is a time on this album where I'm like, oh, fucking K, I can't, I'm not getting through this whole thing. <laughs> it's this. There, there was a time this week in my car where I was like a couple minutes into this and it was starting to fucking hurt my head. I do not think there's a bad song on this album. This is my least favorite of the songs. Uh, Rob, what about you? Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. I don't really think there's a bad song, but King of Carrot Flowers parts two and three are what I didn't like about the record the first couple times I heard it. The (laughs) part that Phil just mentioned as being one of his favorite parts, I love you, Jesus Christ. Yeah, It's pretty in your face, not just lyrically, but the way he's singing and the way the band kicks in. It just sounds like they're banging on garbage cans. (laughs) I like it now. You know, I've softened to it, but I think it's the least strong sort of songwriting effort and production effort. Rachel, what about you? I'll agree with Two-Headed Boy. I don't, and it's it's the least, there's nothing bad. So one, it's the least two? favorite, I guess. Yeah, part two, part two. What's weird is I said the album weakens and you said I'm wrong. And then your least favorite song <laughs> is the last song on the album. That's fine. It's my least favorite. It's not a bad song. I'm still going to listen You're to so it. You're so disagreeable. I hadn't really thought about this ahead of time. What I would say is that, you know, the record runs 40 minutes. Yeah. That as much as I love Communist Daughter and O'Comley, that's about 10 minutes there where if I'm going to skip something, it's probably going to be in there. What? So I, I don't 
don't know if that's a cop out. Sometimes I'm just not on board. Not on board. It's right. Ocumwe is a commitment. Yeah. Mentally, that's physically. I'm just not yes. always. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not always there. So let's go right back to you for the fun one. Then <laughs> we're doing Fuck. the three best songs on the album. What are your three favorites on this? Uh, Holland 1945, Two Headed Boy, and Ocumwe. <laughs> Ocumley's three your, in that. It's your least and most. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, yeah, it'll be my bottom of the three. <laughs> I think it's that's just, a first a on the pod. I don't think we've had a most and least for the same answer. I said number three, regular two-headed boy, just the first one. Communist daughter for number two, and airplane over the sea, just had such beautiful imagery. Communist daughter's your number two. That's surprising to me. Yeah, why? You're throwing me off with this because you are a resident pop banger lover right and i mean i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed this so much but you're the oddities on this album you are a, a fan of i like it i am yeah uh mine are oh comely being my third favorite i just the juxtaposition in that song and the we've talked about it there's a darkness there that i fucking love I know it's boring, but my top two are the King of Carrot Flowers, the one, two, and three. This is like one of my favorite track one side ones, period. When he pumps in with that chipper acoustic guitar and then you let the lyrics go and you start figuring out what's going on. And then it pumps into that I love you, Jesus Christ, with that backing organ. I just, this is a fucking phenomenal start to an album. Rob, what about you? Number three for me is King of Carrot Flowers one that opens the album i think it's a great encapsulation of everything you're going to get on the record and great songwriting two is airplane and one is Ocumley. what does it say about me that i feel i know no one really said they didn't like it exactly but uh i feel the need to defend it i think it's an excellent <laughs> performance it's the best performance it reminds me the most of say someone like bob dylan doing a masters of war it's just like relentless and how long that yes. chord progression of e to c where, where it's like not really conforming to a key so you get a lot of this like semitone weird pull yes and it, and it creates this trance and his stream of consciousness lyrics just work really well in that context it's a long song and they wait so long in the song to bring in an overdub for so long it's just him and the guitar and then, almost like when you've been lulled into complacency, they bring in what do we call it—a sousaphone, flugelhorn, yeah, and flugelhorn. his and his double. We think, and, I don't he, know. and he starts doubling his vocal, and you know, it just like subtly kind of comes in. So they they're very patient. They're very what do you call it? Reserved about it, which I really like. Those are our favorites. All different. I think that tells you how good the album is. One of the last things we have to do, ladies and gentlemen, who won the album? I'll go right back to you, Rob. Who won the album? Hipsters won. Yeah, we got a masterpiece. Hipsters rejoice. <laughs> you have a Bible. We've got to rate the album. I go out off of a 10 scale. Rachel goes off of a 10 scale. You guys are more than welcome to. You guys can do whatever the fuck you want. Uh, <laughs> Phil, I'll start with you. If you have to rate this album, what do you rate it? I can give this I give this a 9 out of 10. That's high. Yeah, I give this, I go high. You as a person, are you typically like, like how hard is it for you to give something a 10 out of 10? A 10 is, is fairly impossible, I would say. But I think this checks a lot of boxes. I think the sort of creepy lyrics that I still don't understand 20 years later are awesome. <laughs> the actual sound quality interplays with the lyrics and everything from like the bending voice lyrics to the, the low finest. It's just like it's, it's never stopped being interesting. Rachel, who it's uh, almost impossible to get a 10 out of 10 out of it is. um i said same i said nine out of ten this is practically perfect wow 
you've given very few things that high. Yeah. This is lyrically, musically, creatively, this hits hits a lot. Rob, what do you what do you rate this? I'm gonna keep it simple. I probably give it up a little easier, but it's a ten out of ten for me. There's really nothing else I wanted out of this as an artistic statement. In the same sense that Dark Side of the Moon is a ten, although I don't that's a more colossal production on many levels, I understand, but in terms of what this was aiming to be and what I want from it as an album and the many layers that I can continue to enjoy and peel back in my listening 15 years after I first heard it, there's nothing I would change about it. So, you know, what? Do you, that's 10. I feel the same way. I do think that there are a couple tracks that weaken a little bit. I'm giving this as high of a nine as I can. This is like a 9.4 out of 10 for me. This is, uh, I think very much like you just said, it really does give me everything I'm looking for in this style of album. And I also don't, it just, it's never really had that part of my history that I think it has for you. This is an incredible album that I'm really, really glad you brought. Uh, this was a really fun one to revisit, Rob. So thank you for bringing it. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity. Phil, thank you as well. This was fun, man. Yeah, absolutely. It was great to meet you both and talk shop. It was wonderful. And and DL, to answer your question from earlier in the night, it was Woodford Reserve. Oh, brilliant. Uh, rye whiskey. Well done. That's delicious. I love Woodford. Rachel, I am surprised and happy Yay, that you good. liked this album. This was great. Everybody head right over to 1001 Album Complaints and listen to them. Like we said, I am on one of their episodes that comes out today talking R.E.M. Green. But hey, if you don't like that because you're some sort of fucking weirdo, they have a ton of great <laughs> albums they talk about. They've got Red Hot Chili Peppers, Black Crows. They're going through the 1001 albums to hear before you die. It's witty. It's funny. I like it. Instagram at 1001 Album Complaints or at The Chop Unlimited. Great guys. Rob and Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, great, great chatting with you both. Join us next week. Next week, we are doing our first quarter quick fire. That's right. We have 10 albums that came out this year that we are doing quick reviews on. That's going to be, boy. <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> how good were those albums, huh? I'd say not <laughs> i'd say they were albums <laughs> they were albums. Uh, <laughs> everybody thanks for listening hope you enjoyed that good night and good